This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guest today is Esther Saffron Foer. She's the author of I Want You to Know We're Still Here, and for many years was the CEO of Sixth and I. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So I know you spent many years researching this book, and we'll kind of get into the book in, in a little bit. And in the process of even just writing a book and getting it edited and prepped is just kind of a years-long process. Um, but then your release date is right in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> um, can you talk about um, the feelings kind of of what it feels like to get your first kind of big book out there in the world, but then the complications of the pandemic on that? Wow. Yes. Uh, I, of course, went to my publishers and I said, oh, can't we just delay this? And they said, no, that's just not the way it works. Publishers (laughs) have a schedule lined up and printing lined up and we're going with it. Um, And at that point, I had a rather robust media tour planned uh, in the U.S. And also the book is being released or has been released and is continuing to be released in Europe. Mm-hmm. And that, I was really looking forward to that. There was going to be Amsterdam and Dublin and Rome and London and Australia. Wow, fun. All lined up. I had dates I could show you in my calendar that I had blocked it all out. And now I'm doing all those cities, <laughs> but right here from my home. Right. Uh, and, you know, at once I got over the disappointment it was okay. I was able to uh, engage with audiences in those places. I also did one with a library. Mm-hmm. I asked the library in New York. And it's, um, it's a lot easier than traveling. For the environment, of course, it's a lot better than... I, I always, I'm an optimist, and I always look for the good in things. Mm-hmm. The environment, I don't have to get on a plane and use all that fuel. Uh, and I'm able to reach out to lots of audiences in a very different way. And for me, it's turned out to be an interesting way, in some ways, a more intimate way. Mm-hmm. But instead of speaking on platforms in bookstores or uh, book festivals with a prepared speech, I'm usually doing conversations on Zoom or, what, or other platforms that I'm now learning. Uh, usually with an interviewer mm-hmm. and a really smart person. And the conversations, because you're not doing a prepared speech and you're going back and forth with a, with a really intelligent interviewer, you're learning things about yourself and the book. Right. So, uh, you know, I, my motto is find the good and praise it. Yeah, they always say, even after you've written a book, you maybe don't see all the themes in it. So these kind of interview conversations about it can help bring things out. I, I, I did watch the one that um, your son Jonathan did with you as well. That was that, that, and that's a different kind of interview because he's going to have a different kind of insight, obviously, <laughs> into the family, and so can ask kind of different kinds of questions. And that was a really good interview. And I'll I, I will link to that one in the show notes so people can see that. But I've now done interviews with all three of my sons. Oh, have you? <laughs> And uh, that's been fascinating because they're, 
much the, the kids are much the same. They're all writers, actually, but they're also different people. And I think we've learned a lot about each other in doing it. I did the last one this week with my youngest son. And so I probably run that, uh, that route uh, out. But uh, that's another way in which uh, that's been a learning. We've learned about each other in, in pursuing these, these interviews. And it's interesting, when I did the first one, I said to my son, well, what are we going to talk about? And he said, we're not going to talk about it in advance. It's got to be spontaneous. Mm-hmm. And the spontaneity was terrific and important. And it wasn't, so all three of them were spontaneous and really great learning experiences about a family. That's fantastic. Yeah. And that's like I said, with this particular book, even that's even more important, the family kind of connection, because it's all about learning about your family and things like that. So, um, so you're, 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 as you said, a lot of your boys, all three of your boys are writers. Um, was reading a big thing in your household growing up? So people often ask me that question. How do you raise three writers? <laughs> and the answer is, I have no idea. Uh, in fact, we were a very undisciplined household. Um, I worked full time always. Uh, so that's a shout out to working mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my kids was asked about, you know, what was growing up like? And he said, well, we, we ate junk food, watched TV. Uh, my husband is more of a reader than I am. Okay. We did have almost always over very simple dinners, family conversations every night. And that was important. I'd say the boys were not, one of them was a very early reader. um, One of them kind of a late reader. um, And uh, we we lived down the store from, uh, down the street from an independent bookstore, Politics and Prose in Washington. Mm -hmm. And the kids were always told that they could buy whatever they wanted at the bookstore. And I guess that was, that was, you know, that was a message, but I I soon learned the bookstore had lots of tchotchkes. They would sell socks, you know, with funny sayings on them and pens. And, and I found out one of my kids was buying that stuff (laughs) instead of, um, but he was going to the bookstore. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of in the environment, at least. He's surrounded by books <laughs> anyway. Um, did you guys use the library very much growing up, or have you since in your adult life? So um, did we use the library a lot? They used the library at school. We happen to have a house that, that is full of books. Mm-hmm. Um, I have certainly used the library in the process of writing this book. Yeah. Uh, For example, the New York Public Library has what's called the Yisker books, the memorial books from all of the little communities in Eastern Europe and Central Europe that were destroyed. People wrote those as memorial books, and they're hard to find, but you can find them at the New York Public Library, and they they give you access to them. You can buy them downloaded, or you can, you know, in print, or you can buy them there. Uh, The other place a library... It turned out to be unexpectedly um, helpful. The Library of Congress has a map room with millions and millions of maps. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, this was about 10 years ago. So I, 
it, they may now be online. I hope they are. But I could go to the library and go through their files. And I spent a couple of days there and was able to find these places that I was going to go visit, uh, maps going back centuries and layering them on top of each other. And it was an amazing resource. Uh, I had to keep refilling my card for the um, copy machine so that I could get enough of the maps. And uh, they're beautiful maps, and it gives you a sense of these places, some of which have not changed uh, for hundred years. But you could look at them way down to the streets and the houses. If you, uh, at that point, a lot of them were on microfiche, and you could uh, kind of hone in right. on a specific part of it. So that was really interesting, and it was, I because these places changed names. Uh, depending on who the occupying force was, I had to do longitude and latitude to find the places. That was really fascinating. Yeah, it's it's really neat, especially the New York Public Library has all these things. So people don't think about that kind of thing being in a public library necessarily, but New York Public Library particularly has a big uh, historical kind of research documents and original documents like that. So. And uh, the other, for example, for me, there's a Jewish historical center in New York that has resources and a library. Mm-hmm. So there are all sorts of unexpected resources in libraries besides just the books on the shelves that uh, have been written by other people. There's, there's firsthand research available in these libraries. Yeah, and that, and that can be um, essential for writing a book like yours where you're wanting to get those firsthand accounts, not just somebody else wrote a book about the same thing <laughs> and you're getting there filtered through them that you're getting right from the source. That's fantastic. Um, so for, um, before we get really into the book, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about your time as the executive director at sixth and I um, it's a, it's a synagogue and it's also a center for arts and ideas and how that kind of uh, links up with religion and kind of how they work all together. Um, what, what do you feel like your biggest accomplishments um, were in that role? Joe, I've, I've had lots of wonderful jobs uh, in politics and public affairs, but kind of late in my career, I, I was involved with these three Washington developers, saw this historic building that used to be a synagogue, had become a church, an AME Episcopal whatever church uh, that was a continual house of worship mm-hmm. um, for over a hundred years. And the building was on the market. This, you know, the population shifts, uh, the Jewish population were owned. The building had moved uptown and towards the suburbs. And now uh, the African-American population was also moving to the suburbs and the building was on the market. Um, and uh, they had the final offer they they got was to turn it into a nightclub, which would have been spectacular. It had balconies. <laughs> and these two Washington developers saw it and they said, we can't let this happen. Once some a property like this is gone, it's gone forever to the community. Right. And the church also really wanted it to be a house of God, no matter what the religion was. They said they felt God's presence. If they had found Jewish objects, they protected them. Mm-hmm. Uh, old books that they wouldn't throw away. They they um, kept in a sacred space. Uh, so I became involved originally as a volunteer while I was running my own public affairs consulting practice. And um, 
there were a couple of people that, that these developers hired to to try to figure out what to do with it. And for a variety of reasons, didn't quite work out the way they envisioned it. And one of them said, why don't you do it? And it was a point in my life where I was ready to take on something very different, to take a huge pay cut, but to do something about building the future. And uh, the developers were these amazing guys who had built complexes in the district and owned sports teams and said, let's be creative. Let's just go for it. And if it doesn't work, try not to make the same mistake twice. And in fact, they gave me a lot of room and also a lot of support. And we tried things. And what we found was even in a neighborhood that was at that when we started, not that great, um, where we had to have the security guards walk the staff to their cars at night, we found that people were hungry for connection, for community, for religious community, secular community, cultural community. And we created in this beautiful space, uh, we started having concerts and book talks and also services. And we were totally non-judgmental. Whereas you see lots of denominations in, in lots of religious sects, we said, if you're Jewish, we don't care. If you, even if you're not Jewish, come. We're not, not going to judge you. Right. We're just going to give you an experience. Mm-hmm. And they came. They came in the hundreds and the thousands, and we found for major holidays, we were selling out in our tickets like overnight, literally. Wow. The people were hungry for that kind of experience, a non-judgmental communal experience that was aimed primarily at young people, at young professionals who uh, were not that interested in traditional in traditional uh, venues, traditional forms of religion, they wanted they wanted they wanted religion, but not necessarily what they grew up with, and in a very open setting. That's fantastic. And and do you feel like you've left it in a good place now that you've retired from that? Yeah. So at some point, I realized I was I wasn't interested in working five nights a week at these events. And also I realized that I was the kind of person that loves creating. And there are different people who do different things well. And this organization had now reached an incredible point. It was, it was described as a new paradigm for Jewish life. But it now needed to become a grown-up organization with rules and bylaws and and uh i was approaching my 70s and i thought you know this is a good time to turn it over to feel good about turning it over and i think it's important to be able to make those decisions and to be able to let go i still sit on the organization's board I'm very supportive. It's kind of an unusual situation where a former director continues on a board. But uh, I helped find the new person who is absolutely terrific. And I'm delighted to be able to support, continue to support the efforts and to watch it grow and prosper. Yeah. Um, I guess you're you're not able to go do an event there because you could probably do an event there yourself for your book. But given the pandemic, I guess... (laughs) 
I did. My my launch took place there. That's great. And, and uh, it was a virtual launch. It was my first virtual event, but we had about a thousand people log on, and it was great. It was the perfect place for me to do a launch. Um, so. Uh- before we get into the book, can you kind of give the basic idea to listeners of what the book is about? I mean, it's sort of a memoir, but more to it than that, obviously. Yes, it's, uh, it is sort of a memoir. It's a family story. It's uh, the story of my family's Holocaust, and where not, most of my family, media family, was murdered in the Holocaust. But I'd like to think that it's a lot more than that, and I hope it is, because it's also a story of redemption and hope and survival. Um, I now have a wonderful large family with uh, children and grandchildren, and hence the title of the book, We're Still Here. And, and you and you can feel that um, the optimism that you said earlier you're, you're, that you're a big optimist. You can feel that in the book that you're, like, like we said about the pandemic at the beginning of this, that you're pulling good things out of this, that you're trying to make the best of a bad situation. Right. I I can't change what happened. I can honor it. I can remember, but I can't reverse what happened. But what I can do is uh, look into the future. And in fact, for example, at Sixth and I helping to build that was about helping to build the future. Mm Mm-hmm. And most of my professional life has been about doing that. And it was at a point where I stepped down as the CEO at Sixth and I, I was ready to look back uh, and to remember, to preserve the stories for future generations, which is also about the future. Yeah. Um, and we're going to explore all of that, all those themes. That, that, that's, that's all very evident in the book. Um, but the first thing I want to – so about your optimism, do you feel like that's just inherent in you or do you feel like you learned that from your, your, your mother or anything like that? Uh, I, I partially learned that from my mother. My mother was an optimist. Uh, my mother was one of these people who, okay, it's tomorrow. We're moving forward no matter what happened yesterday or today. Uh, so I, I think it's partially genetic. I think it's partially learned. It is something for which I am eternally grateful to my mother. That's great. Um, and as you said, a lot of this is about uncovering, not only, not only uncovering your past, but even a past that you didn't even know was there to be hidden. Like, uh, there's, um, and you, there's a quote in the book of my childhood was filled with silences that were punctuated by occasional shocking disclosures. Mm-hmm. Um, can you elaborate on that kind of, how, how did you like, as growing up, how did you feel those silences? You know, a family like ours, uh, a family of Holocaust survivors, and I imagine other families where tragedies have occurred. I, I hope this book will have some universal appeal that will encourage people to tell their stories, to deal with their stories, whether it's a Holocaust story or it's a story about growing up um, poor or growing up rich and losing everything or growing up in a ghetto. We all have these stories, and these stories are so important for us to learn to deal with and to pass on to future generations. So, yeah, in a family of Holocaust survivors, particularly my family, um, a lot of things you don't talk about. You don't talk about them because they're sad. Uh, because my mother didn't want to tell them to pass them on to me. She didn't want to discuss them with me because she didn't. Here I was, her precious daughter. She didn't want to bring pain to me. 
And I didn't want to ask questions because I didn't want to pain this incredible woman who had suffered so much. So it, it was pretty typical. But things would just, and you'd, you kind of maneuver around difficult subjects. You'd find ways to ask questions that, uh, to ask questions several different ways in hopes of getting an answer. Often you didn't. She told me what she wanted to tell me and not anymore. But sometimes things would just slip out. And I, when I was in my 40s, and that became a major turning point for me, I think, in, in lots of different ways. It was the year my children threw me a surprise birthday party on my real birthday, even though I had been living with this false birthday. They thought, Mom, it's ready. You're ready to come out. This is it. And it was about then that my mother, in the course of a conversation, mentioned just in passing that my father had had a wife and a daughter who were killed in the Holocaust. Here I was, 40 plus years old, the mother of three, and I'm just learning this now as an adult. And that was something that just, um, it was just something I couldn't let go of. It was how, how could I know that, so I started scouring databases uh, and there are lots of places where researchers could do that, uh, particularly Holocaust databases at the uh, at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, at the Holocaust Museum in Washington. There's a German database, um, former Red Cross tracing service with kept cards on Holocaust survivors. And I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find anything about this child or her mother. And I started asking people, I said, well, you know, people who knew my father, who mm -hmm. knew him in Europe. And I said, so tell me about this child and what was her name? And the answer I repeatedly got was there were so many children murdered. How can we remember their names? Yeah. But to me, this wasn't just one of you know, over a million and a half children. It was my half sister. And somehow I needed to to deal with this. I needed to hold on to something. A name would have been terrific, but I couldn't find it um, until I ultimately did, of course. Um, yeah, so that, that kind of began a more intensive search for me. I didn't, I don't think I even realized that it was a search that would ultimately take me to Ukraine, um, but, but I put pieces together everywhere I went. I'd ask questions, and I'm one of those people that's particular. I could have been a detective. I'm one of those people who's particularly good at putting pieces together, uh, storing it back in the back of my mind, and trying to come up with a whole story. Mm -hmm. Well, and you're very determined, obviously, too, because as you said, you kept hitting kind of brick walls of, oh, that didn't lead anywhere, that didn't lead anywhere, that didn't lead anywhere. Um, but one of your breakthroughs was when your son Jonathan was out, was in Europe, and you were, and I think you asked him to make a side trip <laughs> to Ukraine, which eventually, I mean, you, you can tell the story better than me, but it eventually led to his um, book, Everything is Illuminated, and then that was famous enough that it got people talking. So one of the interesting things, especially if you're talking to librarians or book lovers, is that this is a book that came from a book. That it's a, it's a story that was ultimately, the, re, the real story was propelled by a work of fiction. 
we had these mysteries, we had these holes in our story. Jonathan wanted to spend the summer in Ukraine, but he had a senior thesis to write. So I suggested that he he go to Ukraine because he was really close mm-hmm. and um, visit these villages that our family came from and see if he could find the family that had hid my father, which I thought might lead me to something about this half-sister. And he indeed did that. Uh, he was in Ukraine for four or five days before cell phones, there was no communication. We didn't know what was going on with him. We were all a little uneasy. Uh, he came back safely and had found nothing. Uh, partially, it was um, that I, di- I actually didn't have as much information as I had when I went in 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, information that I'd learned later and partially because he was 18 years old and uh, indeed hired somebody to drive him around who wasn't very uh, knowledgeable or experienced. But he wrote this book. He wrote this work of fiction that became an international bestseller and then became a movie. And so people started talking about these tiny little villages our family came from. They were suddenly not just on the map, but, you know, really magnified on the map. And people would start calling me and they'd say, you know, that book your son wrote, it's not true. And I'd say, of course it's not true. (laughs) It's fiction. It's (laughs) It's a novel. Uh, But these are people whose families came from these places for whom these were sacred places. And they wanted to set the record straight. Um, And they would call me rather than him to do that. Probably he was answering his phone calls. Um, And so that was, pieces started to come together from these stories. At first, I wasn't really interested or listening that much. But then I also had the amazing opportunity to uh, go with Jonathan and his wife and his six-month-old son to international book festivals. We went to Brazil. Somebody came up to him. Almost everywhere, people would come up with a card or a message and say, my family came from this place. And he, at that point, was on to his next book. So he would bring that information to me. I started following up with it and putting pieces together that started to fit. Um, Do you see kind of his book maybe as a... uh, companion book to your book (laughs) because he kind of gives a fictional version of what actually happened uh is it a companion maybe i think what's just so interesting is that uh there are books about the same story one is fiction one is real uh and they're books i think that speak to different generations perhaps and the importance of telling these stories in so many different ways uh, do I have the whole story? I'm sure I don't. I have enough of the story to have given me peace, uh, to have given me the ability to write this. Uh, but I'm sure that what he's written has resonated for some people and brought the message of the horrors of the Holocaust home to them mm-hmm. uh, in a different way. Well, and, and a lot of your book is about that, is about the memory being passed on 
from generation to generation. And um, one of the things you talked about, uh, if you can tell the story about your mom opening up about a different tragedy from your past of your um, father's suicide. Well, that was something that I dared not ask about. And I guess intuitively, I was eight years old when my father killed himself. I knew that something wasn't right. But, you know, you're eight years old and you don't know what to ask. And with my mother, I I knew this was not someplace that I should go. But, of course, you know, it was this pit in my stomach and this hole in my story. And I just couldn't go there with her. I couldn't even go there with my own brother, who was struggling with it himself. Uh, And ultimately, I really couldn't talk to her about it until about three years before she died. She lived with us the last three years of her life. Mind was great. Body was deteriorating. She was almost 99 years old. But uh, at that point, she was living in our house. She was kind of my captive audience, you know. It's And I started to gingerly ask her questions. But when she was done, you know, when she'd tell me what she wanted to tell me, and then she'd say, enough. Uh, but that's when the opening up came. And also, I... I, I just knew that my father must have left some suicide notes. And when we moved her out of her apartment and into our house, I said, Mom, I want want the box with the letters. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, let's just sit here and not do anything while you think about where it is. And here we were, two very determined women, sitting on the bed in her bedroom in this apartment complex. And I'm suggesting that we're not moving. And finally, she said, okay, top shelf in the back of the closet and told me what the box looked like. And indeed, it had a number of basic things in it. My father's suicide notes, letters that she had kept from people, Uh, even letters she kept, even as a widow, she was loaning people money and there were letters thanking her and saying, please don't tell anybody. Um, Her original marriage contract called a ketubah in Yiddish, in in Hebrew, uh, when she married my father in um, Poland. Uh, Just, I don't know what she thought would happen to it, whether she thought... My brother, who was doing a lot of the helping move, just would tend to throw everything out. And whether she hoped that would happen, I don't know. But we we sat it out, these two women, until she gave in. <laughs> um, and did that help you understand your father better, seeing that stuff? And, and even your mother, those other notes and everything, did that help you come to a better understanding of them? Um, I don't know that it helped me understand my father better. Okay. I understood that he was kind of, that he had nowhere to go, that he had run and run, and the running had run out. Uh, That whatever tragedies he'd lived through, he couldn't deal with, uh, he was in the midst of a business, they bought a new business, and and the guys who sold it to him had um, essentially sold him a bill of goods that wasn't true. Whether he just felt like, okay, this is, I can't, I can't continue. I, I don't know whether it was the fact that he had also had these terrible losses during the war of, of his wife and child. 
Um, but at least I had them mm-hmm. because I, I felt they must have existed. Did it help me understand? It did help me understand my mother better by the things that she kept, the things that she did that she didn't tell anybody about. And she was a great record keeper. Most of all, I don't know, the whole process of writing was so important, not just the process of of, um, the investigation and the trips and the information, but the process of actually sitting down and writing uh, was a very cathartic process. And one that I would recommend to everyone, no matter what your story is, um, to talk about your past, even to yourself, to talk about those, the things you haven't been able to talk about. Uh, I definitely have come out of this. Somebody asked me if I, if the book had changed, the story had changed very much from the time I began to write it to the end. And, and it didn't, I, um, I put together a book proposal. It, it was chapter headlines. Uh, it was maybe 50 pages. It was a good bit of a book. The arc of the story never changed, but I changed in the process. And it's something I will recommend to everyone. And, and now you're able to pass that memory down well, to everybody now, to millions of people who are going to read this book now. So you've kind of spread your story out there. Um, but do you also try to do that personally, like with your sons and your grandchildren? Do, are you trying to tell them stories and maybe not have so many of these silences? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I, I want them to know where they came from. I mean, they, this is their story. Uh, and each of them has other grandparents and other stories ours happens to be the tragic one uh, and they should they should understand their family stories and they should understand um that their families have lived through horrific times but they made it mm-hmm. and that you know we're sitting here in this pandemic that with strength and resilience and thoughtfulness you can make it yeah. you don't have to cave into these tragedies it, um, it, it helps to have that optimism that you've got. Right. Um, so the last question I wanted to ask um, is, uh, so all, all three of your boys are professional writers. Did they give you any writing tips <laughs> as you're writing this? Or did you get anything from them? Or did you terrific, not? Terrific question. So, you know, as the mother of three writers, uh, and as a woman who doesn't think of herself as a writer and doesn't particularly enjoy writing, I was really nervous about doing this. And I was originally going to do this with my oldest son, Frank, who'd been the editor of the New Republic and who went on the trip to Ukraine with me. And when it came time to write, he had, he's at the Atlantic Magazine. He had assignments. He had a a new book to write for himself. And he said, you know, I just can't do this with you right now. And I realized at the end, as much as I wanted that to happen and as much as it would have made the process perhaps a lot easier, it was really important that I did it myself. It would have been a very different book. And I needed to find my own voice and tell my own story. So um, so I'm, I'm grateful that I did, even though it was so much harder. <laughs> I asked them for tips. I was afraid to ask them for tips. I was kind of 
you know, it's, I wasn't ready to have them judge my writing. <laughs> so I, they didn't really see it until there was a manuscript. And I think partly because I really had to work through putting my own story together and putting my own voice on it. Yeah, because like you said, writing itself can help clarify these things and put them where you see the arcs now. Because like if you're just kind of going through story by story, you maybe don't see that. But as you put them together in an order, you're like, oh. And as you go deeper. Yeah. Yeah, because like every door you opened, you went into a room with 20 more doors. (laughs) So there's always more to learn. Well, Esther, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, again, your book is I Want You to Know We're Still Here, um, and it is fantastic. So I recommend everybody either buy it or go to your local library and check it out. Um, thank you. Thank you. Okay, have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice, and help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas.